Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. I'm your host, Alexa, and today we have a distinct pleasure of welcoming a truly remarkable guest, Professor Tamara Davis. An accomplished astrophysicist, Tamara has dedicated her career to understanding the very fabric of the universe. She's currently a professor in the School of Mathematics and Physics at the University of Queensland and is known for her significant contribution to the field of cosmology, where she's won various awards and medals. Tamara's work has focused on investigating dark energy, the mysterious phenomenon causing the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. Her research is part of a global effort to make sense of the cosmos and the fundamental laws that govern it. So with all of that, thank you so much for joining us, Tamara, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I just want to start off, um, what actually led you to studying um, astrophysics? And is it cosmologists? I'm sure you get this a lot. Is it cosmologists or astrophysicists? And what's the difference? So I go by uh, cosmology is sort of, I guess, the subfield of astrophysics that I study. Astrophysics, I think, is, is sort of everything. And cosmology is the study of the universe as a whole. Yep. Um, I, so you can say astrophysicist, cosmologist, whatever you like. Um, and I got into it by Basically, I don't know even, like I didn't sort of grow up saying, I want to be an astrophysicist when I grow up. I was just sort of fell into it. I was always sort of curious about uh, space travel and like the space shuttle programs and that kind of thing and loved science fiction novels and those kinds of questions. And I was pretty good at maths and science and things at at school. So that was a natural thing to study at university. And when it came to like end of my university degree and I had to choose what I wanted to do for my sort of honours project where you sort of do research for a year. I had a choice between doing things like doing the the com- computing that goes into the cochlear implants yep. that you like a hearing aids yep. or studying whether the expansion of the universe can be faster than the speed of light. And both looked fascinating, but I ended up going for the expansion of the universe one and I guess the rest is history from there. Yeah, phenomenal because it's just um, it's an endless amount of knowledge. I mean, I'm sure understanding hearing and the intricacies of our body is, is phenomenal as well. But, you know, one of them just seems so vastly expansive. I mean, it's funny how the same training that you get for those uh, in a physics degree applies to both of those different problems. Like they seem so spectacularly different, but the maths of using sort of mathematics to describe the real world applies in so many different situations, whether you're studying the vastness of the cosmos or you're making physics, using physics to make life better here on earth. Yeah. Wow. Okay. No, that, that, that makes sense. I think, um, uh, was it a lot of the physics stuff? Um, oh, I guess all technology really is physics. And our understanding of how to modify our environment in order to create all of this to make even that happen. Yeah, absolutely. We've got physics in basically everything we do, from the the food we eat to the the technology that we use. Even so, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, one of the ways that I made money, I was working in a, um, a factory that made did steel manufacturing, and just I, they ended up getting me to try and improve the processes, like the, the order in which they made things to keep the cost down and make sure that there were no sort of um, sort of limiting factors in the, in the pipeline. And just using my physics, maths and things, I was able to improve their, their profit margin that, that way by just improving their processes. 
And so those optimizing things using equations actually applies in many, many different situations. Yeah, wow. And um, so I know that you specialize in dark energy and dark matter. So what are they? Um, And yeah, let's begin with that. Okay. So turns out that most of the stuff that we know in the universe, the stuff that makes up you and I, the light we see, all of that, makes up only maybe 5% of what we think the entire universe is made of. Now, we're quite used to the idea that there are things that are invisible out there that we can't see, but we can detect by their their influence. So we look at the wind, we look at the air. We, we can't see the air, but we can see it blowing around the leaves of trees. So we're like, something is, you know, there's something there that's invisible, but it um we can tell it's there because the leaves of the trees are moving. And it's surprising that if you think back just a couple of hundred years, we didn't actually know what air was made of. We didn't have a particle um, theory of matter yet. We didn't really have, uh, we didn't have a periodic table. Um, and so our modern understanding of even something as simple as the air we breathe is actually sort of quite new. Mm. Um, so when we look out at the universe, people were looking at how galaxies move uh, and gal- how galaxies spin And as early as the 1930s, people noticed that they're sort of moving and spinning too quickly. So we know how much gravity that you need, how much force you need to keep something in orbit. So if you have the sun and our planets are going around the sun, the speed, the faster they go, the stronger the gravity has to be. So the bigger the sun would have to be, like the more massive it would have to be if the planets were going faster. So if you just measure how fast something is going at a particular distance – you can measure the weight, the mass yep. of the thing that's at the centre. Yep. And so when um, there was a, a researcher called Vera Rubin in the 1960s who had the really first really strong evidence for dark matter who measured the rotation of galaxies and the stars were going around the galaxies way too fast. And basically you need something like 10 times the amount of matter that we get uh, in our normal bodies to, to explain the things that we see. So in the end it looks it looks like... There's about 25% of the universe is made up of some sort of dark matter that is just, but it's not just matter that's not glowing. It's matter that's different to anything that's on the periodic table, anything that makes up the atoms that make up us. But that's only 25% of the universe. So we've got 5% of the universe making up us, 25% making it made up of dark matter. And now we think there's something even weirder. 70% of the universe appears to be some sort of dark energy. Dark energy is basically just a name that we give to something we don't understand. We don't really know what it is yet. Um, but the observation that leads us to understand that that's there is that the galaxies uh, on the larger scales, when you look at the expansion of the universe, the galaxies are being pushed away from each other. Now that's super weird because gravity should be pulling them together. We expect things to, if they're moving away from each other, they should be being pulled towards each other. So their speeds away from each other should be slowing down. But they're not. They're speeding up. And we don't know what's causing that acceleration, but we give it the name dark energy. And when you add up, when you look at how fast it is and you add up how much energy density that needs to be for the universe, we think that makes up about 70% of the universe. So the total census of our universe is 5% normal matter, 25% dark matter, 70% dark energy. And now the mission is to try and understand what those things are. Yep, yep. So how do you test for that? So there's one thing to have a theory to say, okay, mathematically there's something missing. 
Mm-hmm. Now, how do you prove that? Yeah, so the test, in this particular case, the the observations, the tests came before the theory in the sense that we didn't predict that there was going to be all this dark matter out there. We actually went and we were looking at galaxies and looking at how they moved and people were like, hold on a second, our theories don't really work. We have to come up with, we have to, um, if if the theory of gravity is correct, then we need more matter than we can see to be, be out there and making the dark matter, for example. And so the... But that were those two examples that, or the, the first example I gave of the spinning galaxies, that was just one piece of evidence for dark matter. And that was in the 1960s that that was found. Um, the first hints, as I said, were back way back in the 1930s. So that's been known around about for almost a century. We've like even like very early astronomers, like from from there, could see that there was something weird going on with the motion of galaxies that we needed to explain. The evidence for dark energy actually came much later. That was in the 1990s, where people used exploding stars called supernovae to measure the expansion of the universe. Yep. Now, basically, the way that works is you use the explosion to figure out how far away they are because this particular type of supernova always explodes to about the same brightness. Yep. So by looking at how bright it appears, you can see how far it is away. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So... We use that and then we look at the colour of light that comes from it and measure the speed going away. That with the same, Basically using the same thing that a radar gun is used for in when you people are, like, uh, the police are testing your speed on the highway. We radar gun the galaxies, check it out, check where the, the redshift is that we call it. And we use that combination of the distance and speed to figure out how fast the universe is expanding at different distances. And because in astronomy, when you're looking at different distances, you're looking back in time because the light has taken so long to reach you. You're actually basically measuring how fast the universe was expanding at different times. And that mean, that's the thing that allowed researchers to discover that that expansion is speeding up. Wow. Okay, so if it's forever speeding up and accelerating, everything is obviously moving further and further apart. So you're moving further apart from different planets, you're moving further apart from different galaxies. Um, but in also in saying that, if you keep moving, what 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 is it moving towards as well? Like what is it? Yeah. Yeah, so a great question. Um, one point of sort of clarification, I guess, is that our, our galaxy itself, so the Milky Way, is not actually expanding, but the Milky Way is moving away from other galaxies. So yeah, the universe can. as a whole is expanding, yep. but our solar system isn't getting bigger. Yeah, because of the gravitational pull within. Yeah. Basically, the universe started out um, in sort of a pretty homogenous state, like everything was pretty similar everywhere, and it and it was given some kick. We don't know what kicked it, but we call it the Big Bang, and we, there's some theories for how that began. But basically, things started in, in motion away from each other. And... Uh, the little little patches of the universe, the gravity was strong enough in that little patch because it was slightly dense, more dense than its neighbours, yep. uh, for that to collapse and turn into stars and galaxies and that kind of thing. And once that collapse has occurred, that means the attractive gravity in that little local region has won mm-hmm. against the expansion. But that little patch is moving away from other patches. And so those all the little patches moving away from each other are all the galaxies moving away from each other okay. and that's the sort of scale at which the expansion occurs. Mm. So it doesn't no expansion on the scale of our solar system, no expansion on the scale of our galaxy, but 
the galaxy, each of the galaxies moving away from each other. That's where you get the expansion. Yeah, okay. And um, I think to measure it, um, wasn't it that you were looking at the cosmic wavelengths from the actual original Big Bang? So you were measuring... So you can see the heat, we, the light. Yeah, we can actually... One of the, the when people discovered that the universe was expanding by measuring how that basically when they as soon as we saw that these galaxies existed as soon as we realized that these spiral things that people were seeing in the sky were full galaxies full of billions of stars as opposed to little um, spiral gas nebulae that might have been nearby mm-hmm. as soon as we realized that those galaxies were actually galaxies. People measured the speed and discovered that the vast majority of galaxies are moving away from us. Yep. Apart from a couple of really nearby ones that have been trapped by our gravity, every galaxy is moving away from us. And that was the discovery of the expansion of the universe. Now, there was a bit of a debate at the time. If everything's expanding now, it means it was closer together in the past, yeah. right? All the galaxies are moving away from each other. But they ha- if you reverse the movie, they have to have been closer together in the past. How far can you reverse that movie? Does it go all the way till all galaxies were crashed into each other? Did we start from like a super hot, dense state if you put, put all that stuff together? And there was a debate between the theory of a Big Bang, that there was a really hot, dense early beginning that everything expanded from, and uh, something called the steady state theory where people were like, no, it's just been expanding forever and uh, you just actually have to add matter into the universe everywhere all the time to, to keep the density the same. So but you can't add because isn't that the you can't add something that never existed before? Yeah, you would think so, but at the t- but at the time they people the idea that the universe had a beginning that from the scientific perspective was new, mm. and people had a doubt about that mm. because that mm. for a long time they hadn't actually seen, or well, for a long time they observed stars and seen that the stars were pretty much static in the sky. They weren't moving away from each other. But that was because we had a really local view. We were just looking at our galaxy and the nearby stars that weren't actually expanding, like they're not moving away from each other. And so that was new and people had to come to grips with it. But people didn't want to just take for granted that there was a Big Bang, that the universe had a beginning, just, just because we can see the expansion. They wanted more proof. And this comes into the question that you're asking about the, the light from the early universe. Yep. And what the clincher was that proved that there really was a Big Bang is that we can actually see the light from way back in time when the universe was so hot and dense that if you had been living back then, it would have been like living inside a star, Um, but a star that went everywhere in all directions. And as the universe expanded, it got to a point where uh, at that time, like light couldn't really travel very far because it was so dense that it would just like bounce around all over the place. But as the universe expanded and it became a bit less dense, light was able to travel freely. And that light has travelled since that time and it's travelling in all directions all over the universe. And that light, um, some of that light from a particular sort of sphere around us is just now reaching us. So it's travelled basically from almost the beginning of the universe until now. Mm. And we can see it in our telescopes. And that's called the cosmic microwave background. And the cosmic microwave background, or the CMB, is the... um, uh, evidence, really strong evidence that the Big Bang happened because we can actually see the light from it, basically. Yeah, wow. And this is a slight different diverge quickly. Is just so with photons, right? Wa- uh, wavelengths, do they not age? Or like, how, what's the life cycle of the photon? I mean, this is going slightly off topic, but yeah. I'm just quite curious. 
photons just travel forever. They, if, if you've just got a um, the light yep. uh, and it, if it doesn't encounter anything, it keeps going on forever. Same as normal particles and things, which is a bit counterintuitive. If you just if you have something in motion, you actually have to have a force to stop it. Now that's a bit counterintuitive because we usually deal with things with friction. Mm. So if I'm pushing a box along the floor, it's going to stop unless I keep pushing it. Yeah. But it stops because of the force of friction slowing it down. Whereas, so the natural state of things, if something is in motion, it will just continue going straight unless you have some force to stop it. And so same as photons, they'll keep going. But the thing that happens to them in the expanding universe is that as the universe expands, the photon's wavelengths get stretched. Basically, when you uh, measure uh, a photon from a perspective of something that's moving away from it, yep. then it gets redshifted. Its wavelength goes from from the blue towards the red. Uh, and that means that light that was emitted yeah, sort of looking in the optical wavelengths will end up in the infrared wavelengths and then later at radio wavelengths. Like it gets the light gets stretched to longer and longer wavelengths over time. Okay. Which is why the cosmic microwave background is microwave. It's in microwave wavelengths. It was emitted in optical wavelengths. So it would have been it would have been like if you live back then it really would have been looking like the surface of the sun in all directions of the sky. But we don't see that and this radiation is all around us now still but it's in microwaves, so we don't see it with our eyes. Mm. Um, but we can detect it with our telescopes. That's so cool. Yeah. And apparently, isn't like the white um, when you turn on the radio that friction psh, is the sound of the universe or something? Some of it is, yeah. So the if like microwaves, the the, the wavelength of the those CMB photons, some of it goes into some of the radio bands and the TV bands. So when you – on old analog te- analog televisions that had like the antennae sticking out the top and things, when you saw some of that black and white static type of stuff in the background, yep. some of that fuzz was actual signal, which was the noise from the light that was coming from the Big Bang itself. So you may not have actually realised that you were watching the Big Bang when <laughs> you were doing that. And, yeah, some of the static in the radio bands and you would have that as well. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. And I, I heard that the first time. I was like, no way, this is crazy. Because <laughs> nobody, I don't think many people know about that. No, like, I mean, how do you know? We The radio mm. telescopes that we use and, and things, they are basically big antennae. Uh, they do use the same technology that you use for radios that you you listen to. Mm. Um, and, yes, they, they pick up the, the radio waves from the Big Bang. So now we know, right, that there is, well, we, would you say that you, I understand that science is never definite. There's always, okay, this is what we understand so far, and then you try and improve upon that or disprove it or whatever. But um, now are we quite confident that there is such a thing as dark matter and dark energy? Yeah. So we, what we are confident in is that we have observed phenomena that our standard model of physics can't explain. So we need to either add new components to our universe, like dark energy and dark matter, or our theory of gravity or something like that needs revision. So we have to say, Einstein, good try, not good enough. We're going to have a new theory of gravity that improves on what came before. Mm. And interestingly, we know that we actually do need new theories of physics. That's one of the reasons we have research physicists. We haven't finished physics yet. And we know in particular because we've got quantum physics, which is a great description of all of the, the microscopic stuff, all the particle stuff. We've got the standard model of particle physics. It helps us under, like make fancy devices and you know use all of the technology of the modern age. 
And it uh, does an amazing job at describing that. We also have general relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity. And it does an amazing job of explaining all of the phenomena that we see from for, for gravitational stuff. You need it to work the GPS in your phone uh, because the satellites are up in a different gravitational field than here on Earth and they're moving fast. And if you didn't take into account general relativity, your GPS wouldn't be accurate. So we use it in our everyday lives as well in many different ways. But the two theories are fundamentally incompatible. Mm. They can't work together. And that's because time and space warp and bend in general relativity. They're not constant, like this time dilation. The fact that time doesn't run at the same pace for everybody and it changes on your, depending on your motion is actually probably one of the reasons I got into physics in the first yes. place because that just blew my mind when I heard about it in school. And, yeah, so we know that. But quantum physics doesn't actually have the ability, like the maths doesn't yet have the ability to bend and warp in the way that general relativity sort of requires it to. Mm. So it only works if you don't take into account the time dilation and stuff. So we know we need to find a way to put those theories together and find the, the theory that's consistent for all of those different scales, including quantum physics and relativity. Anyway, long-winded answer. but No, it's uh, great. I'm loving it. <laughs> but that um, – so we know that the theories uh, need some improvement. So – Maybe that that is where we need to go to uh, explain dark matter and dark energy, and that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting. But to go back to your original question, you asked, are we really sure that they exist? Yeah. And I talked initially about the rotation of galaxies as evidence for dark matter mm -hmm. and supernova explosions as evidence for dark energy. Now, if it was just those two measurements – you might go, ah, you know, those supernova people, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, they probably stuffed up their measurements. And, you know, granted, if you stuffing up our measurements is maybe more likely than having discovered a force that has some sort of anti-gravity feature. So, yeah, fair enough. And so we didn't uh, rest on our laurels and say, okay, that's good enough evidence. We'll just tell everybody that dark energy and dark matter exist and we've, we're done with our observations. People have been trying to confirm the, the existence of these things in so many different ways since that time, those initial discoveries. And in so many different ways and you, many independent experiments to try and confirm it. So examples of ways that people have done is um, light, the path of light will bend mm -hmm. in the presence of gravity. Yep. Um, this was one of the first ways that they confirmed relativity mm -hmm. by looking at the stars behind the sun during an eclipse and checking where their positions were. And because the path of light has bent, their positions actually appear slightly different when the sun's in the way compared to when the sun's not there. And so you can measure, again, the weight of the thing in the way by measuring how much the light has bent, how much the path of light has curved. And so there's people have done, used that lensing, it's called gravitational lensing, to look at distant galaxies and measure the weight the mass of the things in between us and those distant galaxies. And when you do that and you have like galaxies or a cluster of galaxies in the foreground, you can tell that the amount of matter in the foreground is the same amount that was predicted by the spinning of the galaxies. Like you need the, – the bending of light is consistent with having the 25% of the universe being dark matter uh, there as well. Oh, okay. So that's a completely separate, separate phenomenon that finds the same answer. Mm. Now, the cosmic microwave background is one of the best probes that we have of the dark matter and dark energy in the universe. Mm. And using it, which 
you're basically looking at the light from the early universe and calculate that you there's some such cool things there. I won't go into all the details, but you've got like sound waves that traveled way back then. Sound doesn't travel in space anymore, but back then when it was so dense, sound was traveling at more than half the speed of light. And that means that there would have been patterns that appeared in this cosmic microwave background. And people predicted what these patterns would be with and without dark energy and dark matter. And if you take out the dark energy and dark matter, the patterns that we observe just don't match the theory. So the theory, um, the patterns that are predicted with, with a theory that includes dark energy and dark matter are a beautiful match to what we see. And so that, that's, a, again, a completely different physical phenomenon that's being measured that confirms dark energy and dark matter are there. And I could go on and on. There's, there's like a whole heap of different measurements that uh, people have now made that confirm that dark energy and dark matter are there in the proportions that we have sort of approximately thought from the first place. And so the thing that we're sure about is there is something out there that needs to be explained. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the explanation is yet, and we're trying to measure the properties of them more precisely so we can direct the theorists as to say, this is what you need to explain. Come on, get your acting gear. Um, but, yeah, that's where we stand. So what are your alternate theories <clears throat> that would um, other scientists are saying, no, the, these are alternate theories that are highly probable as well? So alternate theories include that there are extra particles. So the leading candidate for dark matter is something called, well, there's, well, that there is some sort of extra particle out there that just isn't part of our standard model of particle physics. Now, there's something called a WIMP, um, a weakly interacting massive particle. For Actually, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a bit of a battle going on between the machos and the wimps. <laughs> 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 because the machos are massive compact halo objects, which basically means black holes. Mm. So maybe the extra mass is coming in the form of black holes. Uh, and the wimps are these weakly interacting massive particles. So it was a good little debate between the machos and the wimps. <laughs> Turns out the wimps win. <laughs> because if you had the machos, if, you're there, if, there was a whole, if there was a whole bunch of floating black holes in our galaxy, they would be lensing the light, that thing that I was just yeah. describing, and as they, the stars and the, and the black holes and things move around our galaxies, and occasionally you would expect a black hole to pass between us and a background star. And when that happens, the star would be magnified because this lensing acts literally like a lens and it brightens the background object. So if black, lots of black holes were floating around it like that we would need, then you would get this lensing all the time. The stars would be flashing and getting brighter and fainter all the time, and we don't see that. Mm -hmm. And you can quantify how many black holes are out there by how little flashing that we see. Uh, so we know that the machos are probably not the answer. So it's probably something like WIMPs. Um, and there are other, there's other evidence that it's actually some sort of particle, but there's some other things called like axions is a, a different type of particle that's not a WIMP that, that would be possible. And so people are trying to tr like make ways to measure these other types of particles, but they would interact with us really, really weakly and thus in their name. Um, and that's why we haven't seen them in the past. Um, and so that's that's the leading candidate for what dark matter could be. Some particle is just not in our standard model. But that's not a that's that's just saying that rather than calling it dark matter, you're now giving it a particle. Mm -hmm. um, so that would still be um, correlated, or would you say that it's a competitor? No, that's correlated. Yeah, so that's yeah. so dark matter um, 
the leading candidate for that is a, a particle, but there are a whole bunch of different theories for which types of particle. Okay. So, you okay. know, our, our st- we've, in our standard model, we've got protons and neutrons yep. or we've got quarks that make yep. those up. We've got electrons, we've got neutrinos, we've got muons, we've got all these, like this plethora of different particles all have different properties, such as their mass, their charge, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. So the dark matter candidates... Similarly, they have different masses. They have different charges, perhaps not in that they. We know that they don't have normal charge, like, yep. um, but they could have different um, properties. And so, there's a whole plethora of different types of dark matter particles that could be there. And people are like, "No, my my, my candidate's better. No, I think I think this one's more likely." And but until we can actually measure them in the lab or something like that, it's really hard to say which ones are out there. Yep. But yeah, what we can tell is that. They're not moving fast, for example. Mm. They're moving slowly. Uh, and so they're not like light. They're not relativistic. Yeah. Yep. That that's the kind of thing that we're trying to test. Yeah, okay. And and different dimensions. Mm-hmm. What effect would that have um, yeah. on this whole notion? So both dark matter and dark energy, people have tried to explain by having, say, different dimensions. Now... This gets, some of this can get a bit technical, so, so ask yeah. lots of questions. Yeah, if I'm, I, okay, so we have these three dimensions of space that we usually walk through. I can go forwards and backwards, that's one. Up and down, that's another. Left and right, that's another. So those are my three dimensions. Maybe there's some others. Maybe, we can't, maybe there's others that we just don't perceive. Um, and some ways that that could happen is if the other dimension was like wrapped up really small or – Maybe we just we just don't have access to it for some reason. Yeah. Like a uh, sorry, like an ant cannot see. Um, they're only two dimensional because they can walk up a wall, and that doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. So if you have if you're looking at the surface of a balloon, and an ant is walking around the surface of the balloon, they're walking around, and they can go left and right, forwards and backwards, but they can't jump. Yeah. So they can't go up and down. Maybe ants can jump. I'm not sure. <laughs> We're just assuming that they can't. Yeah. So. Their, their world is essentially two-dimensional yeah. and they don't perceive the third dimension that the balloon sits in. Mm. And so similarly, we live in a three-dimensional world as far as we can tell, but maybe we just don't perceive the fourth dimension yeah. that we could be living in. Now, if you have you heard of something called the one-on-R-squared law? No, tell me. <laughs> it's basically the strength of light drops off as the square of the distance. So if yeah. you're – if you like it – um, if you're one meter away from a light source uh, and then you move to two meters away, if you're two meters away, you'll see a quarter, so mm-hmm. one on two squared of yep. the light yep. source. Yep. Now, why do you get a one on distance squared law? Why is it not like one on 2.1 or one on three or something like that? Mm-hmm. It turns out the reason that you get a one on R squared law is because the surface area of a sphere is four pi R squared. Okay. <laughs> So I'm, I'm now I'm getting a little. I usually don't no, go good. technical go in, uh, in, wow. in these things, but the surface, the light has to spread out. So the number of photons that you, is the same coming from the source, but as you go further and further away, it has to spread out over the surface area of a sphere, yep. basically, and so the intensity drops in proportion to the area of that sphere. Mm. If we were living on a two-dimensional world, it wouldn't have to cover a sphere. It would only have to cover a circle, yep. and the circumference of a circle is not r squared in it it has a two pi r mm. and so it would only drop off in as a one on r law like so it only drop off in proportion to the distance but if we're in a four-dimensional world 
spheres in four dimensions have an R cubed in it. Yeah, wow. And so the strength would drop off more quickly with distance than it would in a three-dimensional world. Mm-hmm. Okay, long story short, summary of that. Depending on which how many dimensions your universe has determines how much the light would drop off as at different distances yep. and similarly how much the force would drop off uh, with different distances. Mm-hmm. And so the more dimensions you have, the more quickly the force drops off and the uh, and that could be one of the reasons why gravity isn't as strong as we expect on really large scales. Yeah, okay. So that that, that would lead that we are in a multidimensional, more multidimensional than three or four, like there could be. Yeah, some people have proposed that as a solution for, for dark energy, for example. Yeah. That um, we see this apparent acceleration because we haven't taken into account the the dim- extra dimensions that gravity sees that we don't. Okay. It's not necessarily the leading theory because, and we're trying to measure this more and more precisely, the, the leading theory is probably that the, the vacuum itself has some energy in it. Um, but these theories with extra dimensions, those are the kinds of places that, that theorists are going to try and explain these weird things that we see. Mm. Um, would you also then say, like, look, taking dark matter and dark energy aside, um, uh, would you say that we are living, we, it's highly probable that there is multiple, more dimensions than we can perceive? Is there like a particle that pops in and out of our dimensional realm? So that's actually, there's sort of two questions in there. So the first one, not the particle, do we live in extra dimensions? Really difficult one. Some of the leading theories that try and combine gravity and quantum physics are higher dimensional theories. So string theory is a famous one and it has 10 or 11 dimensions depending on who you talk to. And in fact, uh, a, a really cool thing is that people have shown that the 10 and 11 dimensional theories are actually identical. So... If you if you have a takeaway from that is that the number of dimensions actually is not defined precisely. Wow, crazy sounds crazy. So, yeah, so it's very very difficult to translate some of that maths into real world sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, if string theory is right, then yes, there are some extra dimensions that uh, are either wrapped up, uh, like um, so you can't actually. So it would be like a, an ant walking along a string, mm. um, where you could potentially do a loop around the string. Uh, sort of yep, uh, twirling, twirling like yep. a bead on a on a string, uh, and you could get back to where you started from almost instantly, and not feel like you've actually moved along the string. If you so, you could have these little wrapped up extra dimensions. We don't know whether that's that's true. Mm. It's sort of it it varies in popularity between different groups whether the string theory is right or not. Uh, but those are exactly the kind of things that we're trying to test. Yeah, well. <laughs> and I mean, I guess I mean, this is also um, a slight diverge as well. Then there's also the multiverse mm. where there's multiple realities all simultaneously branching off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But would that be an entirely different school? You couldn't really. Yeah. So in addition to multiple dimensions, extra dimensions, there could be uh, a, a multiverse. Mm. And that ari- some of that arises because of quantum physics again and some of the weird things that happen in quantum physics. Yeah. It's a bit of a probabilistic theory. So you can't tell where a particle definitely is. It doesn't have a definite position. Mm-hmm. There's some randomness to where it actually is going to be. So you can say with some probability it's going to be here and with some probability it's going to be over there. And usually that probability is like relatively sharply peaked. So you, you, it's going to be somewhere around this area here. Yeah. Um, but 
you're never quite sure. And the process of measuring it gives you a definite location for it. Yeah. But until you measure it, you can't tell exactly, you can't predict exactly where it's going to be. Now, that um, process of measurement, some people have proposed or interpreted the maths of quantum physics to say that when a measurement happens, that universe bifurcates from your other universe and that that becomes one realisation, but actually every possible measurement did happen and each of those different measurements spawned a different universe. Mm. Now, a lot of physicists find that theory to be quite wasteful, having a universe for every particle interaction, so basically it seems a little bit unnecessary and there's also... Um, a whole bunch of questions that come about about agency, like do does it have to be you know a conscious observer or anything like that, or is it just any particle bouncing into another particle Which constitutes a measurement? That's infinite, then. That's well, almost infinite. I mean, you yeah. can't even comprehend how many no. they would split into. Exactly. So, the to that that's like one of the multiverse concepts. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy out there. <laughs> And then, but and this is where I go in the very beginning. I was like, "This is such an expansive topic because no matter where you look, it's expansive." As in, okay, let's say we're in this dimension, or we've got um, the dimensions that we're aware of, and we're also um, uh, looking at this um, universe as just this universe. It's still expanding, and it's expanding into what? Like, oh, what yeah. is it? What? What is it expanding? Into. Yeah, we never actually got into is, that. Well, you this? asked that before and I forgot to answer it. So what's what's it expanding into? So we don't necessarily think that there's like um, an edge to it. So a lot of the ways you might visualise the Big Bang and is that yeah. you had some sort of pre-existing void in which there was a location that everything exploded from. Yep. Now we don't think that that's the case. Oh, we don't think that there is a location. We don't necessarily think that there was some sort of pre-existing void. We think maybe space and time were created with the Big Bang. Okay. And so when things are expanding, it doesn't mean that there is an edge that they're pushing into. It's more like the space is being added in between galaxies. Okay. So going back to the balloon that we were talking about, the ant walking on before, if I have the, the, the balloon and I draw dots on the balloon, pretend those dots are galaxies, and then I blow up the balloon, yep. the the dots will get further away from each other. So every dot is moving away from every other dot. And if you're the ant there, you look around your two-dimensional universe and you see that the dots are all moving away from each other, but you could walk around the entire universe and you'll never find an edge. Mm. It's just that the space is being created between the galaxies. Yep. And it's that sort of sense that we think the universe is expanding it's not necessarily pushing into some sort of void, but the rubber of our universe, like yep. the space of our universe is expanding. And so the distances between galaxies are just getting bigger because the, you have the, span, the internal expansion rather than pushing out into some extra unknown void outside of the universe. Okay. But then I thought, so like matter can't be um, created or it can only be exchanged, right? Energy can't be created, only exchanged. But if there's more energy coming into something like me blowing into a balloon that's causing this expansion, where is that energy coming from? Because if you, yeah. So you're asking a quite difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> so you, if, because you're, 
you're basically this is a question of how did the Big Bang happen or how mm. did the expansion of the universe begin? Because that's still energy that and has to go from somewhere to something. Even the question of where did the initial particles come from? Because each particle has energy. Mm. You have E equals mc squared. The energy of a particle is its mass times the speed of light yeah. squared. So even just having mass means that energy has come from somewhere. Mm. And it's really difficult to – well, we don't really have a solid answer for it because we don't know what caused the Big Bang. But the we have um, some ideas from quantum physics of how you can – and this actually comes back to a point that you were talking about earlier where you can get virtual particles popping into existence and essentially borrowing energy from the universe temporarily as long as they only survive for a short amount of time. Now, this sounds crazy and it sounds like it violates that conservation of energy sort of concept that's really pivotal to lots of physics but it doesn't because of quantum physics now there's this thing in quantum physics called the uncertainty principle which means which it related to what we were talking about before where you don't know the exact position of something yep. and you don't know the exact momentum of something the more accurately you measure one the less accurately you know the other yep. and the same thing is you don't know the precise energy of a particle um, or its duration, essentially the duration of some sort of event. And so if you don't know the energy and duration simultaneously, you can't know those both simultaneously, you can borrow energy as long as you do it for a short enough time. <laughs> and interestingly, the particles that you create that way, these virtual particles, constitute what's known as vacuum energy, so literally the energy of nothingness. And funnily enough, that energy of nothingness, the vacuum energy, is the leading candidate for what's causing the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. Because <sighs> this borrowing energy from the universe is could cause a repulsive force, a repulsive gravitation. Technically, it's not really um, – It's a. It's an, you end up with negative pressure, which is also crazy, but I won't go into that de- in detail. But basically, it has the properties that you need to accelerate the expansion of the universe – so it might just be that this quantum physics effect of the vacuum not actually having zero energy is the thing that's accelerating the universe and can explain dark energy. So wow. that, that's actually the leading candidate at the moment. I can see how beautifully this puzzle is fitting together right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is funny because it comes in from all these different directions. Yeah, but it seems like it. Yeah, there's many, many different ways in which it's complementary and you need the uh, the quantum physics to explain the, the gravity stuff and and. We're trying to put all the pieces together in a picture that we make sense that makes sense and we understand. Yeah, that's so because I mean, when I was looking um, into it, it's like you know the three things that we really knew is that um, you know there was something out there. It interacts with gravity, and there's lots of it, or you know, dark energy. Um, you know, it's it's everywhere, and it's it's really helping move this energy. But other than that, they didn't know really much. But talking to you, it's like wow, it actually seems like in the past few years, there's just been so much advancement within this area. Uh, for it to seem like a very highly plausible, I guess, but still calling it dark energy or dark matter, you still don't know exactly what the particles they are or or what. Yeah, Yeah, we're keeping keeping our minds open to possibilities um, because, for example, there's there's some quantum physics predicts this vacuum energy uh, and it should have the right properties to accelerate the universe, but it also predicts in some sort of naive prediction of how much there should be. And that prediction is 120 orders of magnitude wrong. So <sighs> if you want to – the prediction is terrible. Uh, it's how – if you have one with 120 zeros after it multiplied by the amount we see, 
That's what the prediction would be. Um, so it's not all solved. Like if if that wasn't true, then we would probably relax, sit back and say, oh, it's vacuum energy. But uh, I think until we find a quantum theory of gravity, we won't actually know whether that prediction is right or not and whether the thing that has the correct properties to be except dark energy uh, also has the correct amount. Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah. And so your work in this, how do you what, – What? because I understand you're dedicating your life to this equation and trying to solve this puzzle, am I correct? Basically, yes. Yeah, so what, how, how, what does that look like? Okay, so the thing that I like doing is working with the observations and with the theorists. So I like taking the predictions that the theorists have made for what these could be and translating those into observational tests that we can then go out and, like, you know, poke the universe and say, they, the, the theorists say that this should be true. Is it actually true? Um, and so, for example, we're trying to do better measurements with those supernovae that we mm-hmm. I was talking about, measuring in much more precise detail the evolution of the expansion of the universe over time yeah. and looking to see if there's any evidence that the dark energy might be different in different parts of the universe mm-hmm. or whether it's increased or decreased with time and see if we can see any variations that way because different theories will make different predictions about whether it's just constant everywhere or whether it's clumpy and this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, we're... we're trying to measure it in as many different ways as possible. Um, There's a way that I didn't mention before, which is measuring the distribution of galaxies in the universe. Mm -hmm. So I'm part of a survey called the Dark Energy Survey, where we have recently um, released a catalogue of 590 million galaxies that we observed with uh, over the course of six years and with this cool new instrument that's over on a telescope in Chile. And this Half, over half a billion galaxies, we we've, can use that almost as a sort of a grid paper to measure the expansion uh, over time. And that is a, another technique that we've used to confirm the dark energy. And again, we can. I'm working on a new one called the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument, which does a more fine detailed version of that, which we're going to have about 40 million galaxies. Wow. Yeah. And um, we actually... Uh, yeah, we have a little planetarium show on that one yeah, coming out here. That's going to be that's going to be showing in Brisbane and other places around Australia. And um, the yeah, so there's all this sort of exciting stuff being done. And but to summarise what it is, is basically we're trying to measure its properties more precisely in as many different ways as we can, so that we understand what we're trying to explain. Mm. And then, but. Even if we measure it in measure both dark energy and dark matter in you know amazingly precise detail, it still doesn't explain what it is. So in the same way that when we look out at the at the the wind blowing around the leaves of trees, we can measure the how trees how the leaves of trees move in the wind with amazingly precise detail. We can ca- calculate uh, even pressures and th- things like that, but it doesn't explain what. Um, carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and and stuff are so we can't explain air just by looking at the leaves of trees Mm. so we have to go beyond that at some point and get the theory and explain what we're seeing wow and that's going to be the the big question isn't it is how to actually see the wind Mm -hmm. for what it is yeah then measure it's um yeah how to see the dark energy and the dark matter wind Mm. and um decide and figure out what it's actually made of as opposed to just seeing its effects. Yeah, that's so interesting. And AI, but that that would probably help 
quite a lot because AI, from my understanding, is amazing at crunching numbers and, and looking at data. Um, I understand it's the creative element that would be saying, okay, well, maybe let's try this. But having um, this acceleration in that regard, do you, do you work a lot with AI? Yeah, so AI is one of the tools that has been used, that been increasingly used in astronomy. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of te- things that it's really good at is classifying images and like looking at differences between different images. Um, and for example, when we're using supernovae, these type 1A supernovae that are the ones that always explode to the same brightness, we have to find the supernovae of a particular type. So we have to compare both their, their light curves of how they brighten and fade yep. and the spectra, their colours, um, to figure out what type of supernova it is so to set decide whether we can use it for this analysis. And we use machine learning to train classifiers to say, if you see this kind of pattern, then that means it's the kind of supernova we're looking for. And if you see a different pattern, it's this other kind and yep. that kind of thing. So those are the sort of spaces where AI is being used in astrophysics. Wow, and I can see how that could speed up the process so much more than having a person having to analyse each because it could do it so quickly. Yeah. You've got to always be aware of the um, biases in your training samples and things oh, yeah. Yeah. and make sure that what you're teaching the AI is accurate because it's only as good as the data that you give it. And so you've got to be really careful to not blindly trust the results just because, oh, it's a computer, it tells yeah. me what's right. Because there's all sorts of pitfalls that you can fall into, yep. uh, and we find most of those pitfalls and yep. and um, have to be very alert to them. Mm. And so it's a very much a you know a, an exchange process between human and AI to yeah. to figure out the best um, solutions to things, which is true of any um, yeah. machine learning type of analyses. Yeah, for sure. And when you're looking at this. Um all of these galaxies and everything, I'm sure it definitely makes your mind wonder. I mean, we we can't be alone or else it's an awful waste of space. <laughs> you know, so how, I mean, it's just, it's so expansive. I mean, so going into that, you know, what are your thoughts on uh, life on other planets and even intelligent life on other planets? Yeah, I, I mean, as you say, it would be an awful waste of space. There are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy alone. Our observations of extrasolar planets, so planets that orbit other stars, indicate that there is probably a solar system around every single star out there, basically. Um, so we're now able to see that, see that, and there's so many planets. A lot of them aren't Earth-like, but we don't always expect life to be just the kind of life as we know it either. So you could get some weird life on other types of planets that are either much hotter, much colder, different type of things. Um, if we're looking for carbon-based life, you know, we look for planets where there might be liquid water, um, also true of things like the moons of Jupiter and, and that kind of thing. So anyway, there's so many places that life could be. And one of the most exciting things uh, that I think might happen in the next 10 years or so is that telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope, they are able to look at planets that are orbiting other stars and one of the ways that they detect them, and there's been a whole bunch of different um, satellites like Kepler and TESS, which discovered planets around other stars by looking at how when you have like a basically a mini eclipse, the planet, sometimes the, the orientation is right so that the, the distant stars out there and the planet will pass between us and the yep. star. Yep. And it will just slightly dim the yep. star for a while. And if that happens... So the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be going out and looking at these and trying to detect light from the atmospheres. Mm. Or rather, you would see if, if there's an atmosphere around the planet that's doing the eclipse, 
some of the light that's coming from the star will pass through that atmosphere, just sort of the skirting edges of the, of the planet. And by what um, wavelengths of light the atmosphere absorbs, we can tell what the atmosphere is made of. Yep. So we are now at the point where we're legitimately going out and trying to measure what the atmospheres of distant planets are made of. And if you think about what would people see if they looked at Earth, they would, look at, they would find something really weird. The thing that is really weird on Earth is there's a lot of free oxygen out there, O2, floating around, the stuff that's made by plants, right? And you don't really get O2 floating around unless there's something creating it because it's a very unstable molecule. Yeah. It will burn. It will rust. It basically, it's a very uh, reactive molecule. So if there's any of it out there, processes will use it up. And so in order to have free oxygen floating around, you have to have something generating it. Here on Earth, that's life. So what people are going to be looking for are biomarkers or parts of the um, atmosphere that indicates that there's some sort of biology there, some sort of thing making these un- unstable elements. Yeah. And that's, that's I think, really one of the most exciting things that might come out of things like the James Webb Space Telescope. It's specifically looking at oxygenated planets. Yeah, so oxygen is a, is not the easiest molecule to yep. look for, so they won't be looking for that molecule necessarily specifically, yep. but they're looking for similar things that we think are generated by life yeah, okay. that might be uh, in the observable range. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I do I, I hear you in saying that and that would be a lot easier to um, filter through uh, many other planets and I also understand uh, the thought that life can form in, in any way, like maybe there's aliens out there that find oxygen completely repulsive and and they would never survive if there was an inch of it mm-hmm. on their planet mm-hmm. um, but then I guess that makes it a lot more difficult to discover what we already know can quantify intelligent life and how easy it is to yeah if you look at early earth there wasn't any floating there wasn't significant floating oxygen around mm-hmm. that was um, if you look at the cyanobacteria and things that were on uh, the early forms of life that were on earth they're actually responsible for oxygenating oxygenating our atmosphere and allowing the higher, if you like that term, forms of life to emerge um, that we're able to use that oxygen as a fuel source. And so uh, in some ways that early life on Earth poisoned its own atmosphere um, and sort of led to not its demise, but it it led to other stuff growing up. But there there are... um, organisms even on Earth that don't that don't use oxygen as fuel, obviously, and um, and having a really oxygenated atmosphere is not actually good for them. And some of those things are the things that were responsible for making the oxygen atmosphere in the first place. So maybe we have a little lesson to learn about our our life's impact <sighs> on the planet, and it's self detrimental sometimes. <sighs> yeah, and then you're looking at um, Mars as well, and I understand um, with our expansion there. Um, and once again, becoming multi-planetary species, uh, species, which seems to be the next trajectory uh, when you're looking at us starting from, like, let's say, one continent expanding into other continents, expanding into other planets and so on. Um, that's a very interesting conversation as well because mm-hmm. of um, there could be t- potentially life on Mars and if it's the same as life on Earth. Yeah, there's some indications that Mars had – so Mars used to have liquid water on the surface. We're very confident now. Um, it probably was warmer, it had, had a more clement atmosphere um, than Earth in the very early days of the solar system. So oh. there is actually a chance that life started on Mars and was transferred to Earth in an asteroid or something like that after some sort of impact on Mars. And so there is a chance that we're all Martians yeah. if we go back to our deepest a- ancestors. 
Um, and that, that's a whole set of conversation in yeah. itself. But you also asked about intelligent life before, and this is actually this idea that you know we are going to expand to other planets relatively soon. We we surely we're going to do that in the next couple of decades. Yeah, and. That's only really a hundred years after we've managed to build radio telescopes and and to um, uh, like after we figured out flight in general. Like it's barely any time in the scheme of things. So if an intelligent species pops up, you think that their expansion into their solar system into the wider galaxy should be inevitable in a, in like a not too long a time. Yeah. But if you look out at the stars in our galaxy, the average age of a star is actually 2 billion years older than our sun. So other stars would have had 2 billion extra years for life to evolve to spread compared to ours. Now, that you might expect only planets would have evolved a little bit later and stuff, things like that. So there's reasons. But there's a, some, a question called the Fermi Paradox, which is if, if life exists out there, why haven't we seen it? Yeah. Where are they? <laughs> exactly. Now, some people claim, obviously, that we have seen life from other planets, um, but I think most of those are pretty dubious claims. Um, but there are various explanations for this, but the fact that we haven't seen really obvious evidence for just civilizations spread around our galaxy is possibly an indication of the fact that life evolving to intelligence, at least, might be very rare. Um, and if it does evolve into intelligence, it could be a warning sign that, you know, maybe once it involves intelligence, it, the, the same technology that you need to launch off a planet is the technology that was needed to make intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. So there's the risk that intelligence destroys itself. Yep. So we have to be aware of all of those things and potentially take that as a, a lesson. Yep. No, actually um, on that I had two very interesting conversations. Um, one with the life on Mars, which is why I mentioned it was with um, Professor Avi Leob, mm-hmm. um, the Harvard professor of black holes. And he was the first one to say, you know, actually I think, I mean, I don't think the first one anyone, but the first one that I had come across that was like, no, we, we probably are Martians. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's so interesting. And um, in terms of life, he was saying when you're looking at that um, meteor that came past um, or co- meteor, yeah, and he was saying that actually could have potentially been a spaceship based on the trajectory. But, I mean, that's a whole different conversation and guys highly recommend checking it out. It's such an interesting chat. Um, but then the the second one, um, oh, yeah, was mass weapons of mass destruction. And... <laughs> It just it makes me want to cry sometimes, uh, you know. And I spoke to um, Margaret Cossell, uh, who wrote a book for uh, NATO on this exact topic, and you just see how close are we to wiping ourselves out. And then, and this, and this also branched off in a whole different thought. But it's like, well, would AI also be our natural progression? Like, if we have started off creating things to help make our environment better and then we keep creating them, keeping creating them, would that not be that we would create intelligence? But then you think, well, then AI would never die because it never ages because it's artificial. Then is that actually closer to the universe than we are because it's, you know, this like non-judgmental, non, you know, it's just this thing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the speculation that if we, people have been looking for intelligent life from other planets by looking for radio waves that they might be emitting. Um, and that was based on the technology that we're using ourselves. We transmit radio waves all over our planet and we were just we're just accidentally spilling radio waves out into space. But there's no guarantee that 
uh, an alien civilization would be using that same technology. And indeed, if they had evolved to a point where they had transferred their brains into computers, like say we've, people have speculated that we might be able to do, mm. so their consciousness, consciousnesses are now just microchip, like they're yeah. in a computer, then would that computer have the desire to travel anywhere or could it do all of the thinking that it ever needed to do just inside a box? So the future evolution of humanity might be a massive supercomputer buried into really stable rock on Earth somewhere that wouldn't be transmitting radio waves, wouldn't be exploring or anything like that. Uh, and so that's one of the explanations for the Fermi paradox is that the natural evolution of intelligence is not to explore and expand, but to explore and expand inside a computer. Wow. But still to pick up some sort of – because for, for it to collect data to continue to grow, wouldn't it – You'd like, think that we would want to keep collecting data. Yeah. And, yeah, maybe there's – and you could also have – and relays going back to some sort of computer. You may have people, you may have spaceships launching with computers inside them that have all of the intelligences that are traveling to wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, like, that's, I don't think that personally that that's a particularly likely outcome that we would just end up in a computer buried in the ground. Sounds a bit morbid. <laughs> but it is one of the ways people have said that. The other, my, my other fun the, uh, explanation for the Fermi paradox for the, for the reason that we haven't seen intelligent life is that as soon as as soon as life in the galaxy does see someone sort of growing and like is spawning um, technology uh, and the ability to launch and stuff, they they turn it into a, a zoo, yeah, like a, a cosmic zoo. So we're in a and zoo right now. So we could be we could be sitting in a little cosmic zoo called Earth, and the, the aliens are out there in their spaceships looking down and look at them and go, oh look at this, isn't that cute? They're trying to do quantum physics. Um, <laughs> well done, guys. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Don't play yourselves up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll intervene just as we're about to, yeah. to kill each other. One could always hope. Yeah. Or they'll just watch and just be like, oh, yeah, there's another one gone. Yep. No, just well, close. we knew that was going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? So interesting. And this is your your field of research and what you've chosen to, um, once again, dedicate your life to is so fascinating. And your mind is just incredible. And to have this um, continuous inquisitive nature, which is what I feel you really need in this profession more though I mean I'm not down any other one but you know you do need an incredible passion for knowledge and yeah inquisitive nature and that's just so phenomenal and, and seeing you I can just feel it you know it's it's really really cool thanks so much yeah it's I have a huge amount of fun I feel extremely privileged to be allowed to do the job that I do and um, just really happy that I can go and explore these all these things yeah well thank you so much for your time today um, i Thoroughly appreciate it. And I hope, guys, um, this has given you more insight into dark energy and dark matter and uh, the universe and um, asking and, and thinking about these sort of questions um, because more people probably should be thinking about these questions for us to understand this more and more and more. So thank you. It's a huge universe out there. Thanks very much. <laughs>